for me, success is, and this is true in all capacities, is the end of the day when I lay my head on that pillow to try and get at least eight hours of sleep. <laughs> did I go through what I needed to do that day that I knew I needed to do? And if I interacted with people, was I kind to them? Welcome to the Creative Solutions Podcast. On the show, it's my job to tease out the creative solutions my guests are coming up with to change the world through creativity, social action, and mindset. I also give you tips and techniques so you can do the same. This episode is brought to you by my class, Meditation for Busy People, where you'll learn how to relieve stress and discover clarity and joy in just five minutes a day. It's also brought to you by the Brain FM app and this podcast host, Podbean. Also, follow the podcast on Instagram or TikTok and check out our shop for merch, music, and musings. The links are all in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the Creative Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Isolde Trachtenberg. Thank you so much for being here. I'm ridiculously excited to have my guest this week. Uh, the reason is because I've actually already talked to him before and so it's very exciting to have Eric Foyer on the show again. And why? Why? It's because this man is doing art on a really unique scale and incorporating creativity into everything he does, which I think is so cool. But let me tell you about Eric. Eric is a self-taught New York City artist. So, you know, immediately New York City artists and me, we are like this. You didn't see me cross my fingers, but you know what I mean. Eric blends abstract and realism in his faceless portraits. And we're going to talk about the faceless portraits. I'm super excited to find out more about that. Drawing from photographs or social media, he invites viewers to project their own identities onto the subject. His work transcends perfection, and instead it focuses on emotions, body language, almost the aura of the subject in addition to the subject itself. Eric's art serves as a therapeutic dialogue between creator and viewer. Eric, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Welcome. Hello. Great to be here. Thanks for stopping by. So you might notice that you're going to have a little bit of a lag between what I say and what Eric says, and here's why. I am in Eric's studio, just like I did at the Jungle Cafe relatively recently. We also are doing this live in Eric's studio. Every once in a while, I get lucky enough to have the opportunity to actually go to the place and interview the person in their own space. And that is amazing to me. I love doing it. I love having that opportunity. So you're going to hear some extra noises and you're going to hear it coming to you live. As, as you know, I don't edit. Things go where they go. So I'm going to just run in and get started. Eric, first of all, I love that you have the studio space. It's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Can you tell me what prompted you to go, you know what? I need a space to just create. I don't want to do it in my bedroom. I don't want to take over my kitchen. I need a space that's just dedicated to art. I was literally painting in my kitchen. So that was the impetus. Uh, art kind of like a bad fever grew more for me over time. Uh, became this addiction. It came from painting maybe one painting a month to three or four paintings a month. And so the amount of paintings I had grew. I also have a cat. And cats and art do not mix very well. I don't enjoy having to chase my cat around the house to wipe paint off its paws. It's not fun. Um, so there was a point where I realized I really want to be able to expand to be free, to leave something on the floor that's wet and not worry about my cat brushing up against it and dragging oil paint around the house. And I kind of wanted to commit to myself as an artist. 
and really separate my art from something I do in my apartment to somewhere that I go for it and a private sanctum almost. Oh, first of all, I love that. Oh, I'm going to have to scooch up in order to be able to do this recording because we're seated at slightly different angles. I love doing live recordings in part because of this, because you get the opportunity to try things a new way. First of all, I have cats too, and my husband is an artist also, and he often has to (laughs) wipe paws or sort of try and get the cats out of the way. And I'm now thinking, oh, he needs needs a studio too. Uh, And the reason I'm so curious about this whole idea of a studio is what you just said about you needed your own sanctum. You wanted a space that was just dedicated to art. And what's so important about that? What is important to you, especially as a self-taught artist, to make this something that is a time and place away from time and place, where it's just dedicated to that? Uh, Art for me at the forefront is kind of a therapy, in a sense. I really felt back into art after a breakup a few years ago, and it was something that didn't remind me of that person that I could put work into, that I could see the results And there would be days when I would think about something very rough that happened, and I would cry at the easel. And it was very emotional, but it was therapeutic. You have time there with your thoughts. You think through things. Sometimes you're listening to music. It brings you to a place. But for me to be able to come in here, and this is where I'll, the first of many times I'll sound a little kooky today, commune with the creative spirits. I am a firm believer that artists and all creatives in some capacity are just conduits for the creative energy that's in the universe. There are many times that I just have an intuition to paint this or use this color, and that's just what I go with. And I firmly believe the more time I spend in here, like uh, a better designed airplane, you fly smoother, you fly farther, you fly faster. And the work that's been in here, I think, is because I've committed to bringing that energy further into the space. Okay, first of all, you are not sounding kooky. You are actually singing my song. I, I believe, too, that the energy in the universe is inherently creative. I mean, that's all that things are creating and destroying and being creative and being destroyed at all times in, in, the, in the entire universe, from pulsars billions of light years away to taking a pencil and, and creating something that has never been before. And so, yay, I love that you're, that you're thinking of it in those terms. And the notion that you said that, that you would cry at the easel that you uh, your emotions would it sounds like overcome or maybe overcome you or infuse you and did that and how did that express itself in the work how did your emotion like you said oh you I, I get inspired to do this color or that how did those strong emotions express themselves in what you were doing as you were healing from from that emotional trauma I think some of the earlier work had a maybe a dark undercurrent to it, and so that probably came through with some of the pain I was going through. I know very early on when I got back into painting, I had a picture of a a heart with a sword in it, and it's just like nail on that, like too obvious almost, but having to almost find my way through it. um, I think now it's more in just the colors and the tone. Um, I would say now it's more moving towards a playful light air to it, but there were times in the past where... It was more shadows and playing with the darkness and the black and the white. And there was always a a shadow kind of lingering over. And I try to avoid that now and really have my art be just a source of joy 
and lightness and energy. I think life is hard enough as it is. Mm. You should look at art. And sometimes, yes, it's okay to acknowledge the darkness in life, and art can be that. But I try, at least in my art, as in with my personality, to just brighten up a room and to have people kind of have fun and just make it be a good day. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I'm laughing because uh, my husband especially, his art is always funny. Like he, most of what he does has some humor to it and he doesn't want to use words like comics or whatever. So he makes the art itself funny, except for one piece that I call the green goddess that I would not let him sell because it hangs in my living room. And I was like, no, 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 this you will not sell. And yet there are times when people look at his stuff and they're like, huh, and they don't find it funny. They find it profound or poignant. And it's, you know, in the eye of the beholder and all of that. And I wonder sometimes as an artist, what you intend might not be what someone else gets out of what you've produced. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you when someone has a reaction that you absolutely didn't intend versus that notion of I intended this to be, as you said, full of joy and full of light, and someone goes, oh, I feel uplifted having seen this, having experienced that art. One of the biggest things I've tried to overcome as an artist, and I get this from Rick Rubin, is create for yourself, not for others. And so I create for myself. I paint what I want. But if someone else finds a different interpretation or different viewing of it, that's equally as great for me because they're still engaging with it and they're seeing something, even if it's negative. I've had people come up to me and say, wow, your faceless paintings are creepy as fuck and they're haunting. And on some level, at first glance, you may think, oh, creepy is bad. I don't want ever to hear that it's creepy, but horror movies are creepy and people love horror movies. Francis Bacon's artwork was creepy and people love Francis Bacon's artwork. So I think being able to just understand art is like beauty in the eye of the beholder and whatever someone sees is not right or wrong. That's their viewing. That's their interpretation. As long as they're engaging with it, that's enough for me. I love that you said that. I'm going to scooch this microphone up a little bit and that means I'm going to sit super tall <laughs> so that so that uh, I get you a little bit more on uh, on the mic. So I'm I'm actually my vantage point right now is that I'm getting to see your art, right? I'm in I'm in the corner of the studio and I have a view of all of the paintings. My I, okay, so I have a personal favorite. I love the 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 one of Oscar Isaac and Rachel Brosnahan as uh the characters in the sign in Sydney uh Burstein's window. All of a sudden, I couldn't remember his name. Uh, and immediately upon seeing it, I actually saw th the image of Rachel Brosnahan and Oscar Isaac in my head. It was so, uh, this piece is evocative to me. And frankly, if I could afford it, it would be on my wall. Um, but the, the point for me is that I, I don't know that I need the faces in order to see who that is. It's and it's not like it's a well-known image, right? The other image I'm looking at is your painting currently. I hope it's okay for me to talk about. You're currently painting uh the Miss Jackson if you're nasty if you will. The sort of the uh I think it was a Rolling Stone cover and uh and it's the one where she's nude from the waist up and a man's hands are sort of holding her breasts so that you don't see her nipples. And it's iconic. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows this particular image and you're painting it. And I can see that and go, oh, I walked in, in fact, and said, ha, huh, Janet Jackson, right? 
but the sign, the sign in Sidney Brustein's window, it's not. And yet you captured something in there that I went, oh, I know exactly what this is. So when you're doing this and you, you're self-professed, self-trained, when you're doing this, when you're creating these pieces, uh, and you, you also mentioned creative universe and, and sort of the creative spirits and you communing with them, what techniques are you using to evoke the characters, even if we don't see their faces to identify them. Does that, does my question make sense? 100%. It makes perfect sense. Uh, I will say the brain is powerful and that you've probably seen this a few times where they'll give you a sentence where a word's jumbled or something's missing, but your brain still completes the sentence or you still know what the word is. I think it's if the first letter and the last letter is correct in a word, but the middle few letters are jumbled up, your brain can still piece it together as you read. So your brain still can sense what's out there, and I think even intuition-wise, connect the dots for you. As I'm going through, I have my structure. I paint the underpainting. I do the Grisel method, painting the gray, the, the shadows, the texture, the tonality. And then the color is kind of like that last piece. Like with interior designing, you add the furniture to the room to create the feeling and the feng shui. It's adding the the essence in the painting to the sense and I think that's where as best I can I try to bring in the picture and what exists and the source material but whatever that feeling is whatever the universe is telling me at that moment it's in that time this color feels right this is the mood the aura that I'm sensing for example the painting behind you it's all reds and pinks she's naked she's just laying there it's a very central painting in a sense I couldn't have imagined putting in any colors, any other colors besides those two because I wanted to play up this private boudoir scene almost. Like, I'm not saying that she's not in charge. She she has an air of power in my mind, but someone else may view it and say, is she a concubine? Who? What's the power dynamic there? But the color was very important for me to give us that air of this is a romantic and sensual painting and what you see in it beyond that is up to you you know it's interesting i'm looking at that same painting and i'm going i didn't think of her as a concubine i thought of her looking at her i thought of her as, as a woman who is very very comfortable with her sensuality and very very comfortable in her body and uh, you know more of us should be right but uh but what's interesting is you know again what you may or may not have intended i got more out of it and and in fact uh, in our writers group meeting last yesterday, Alan, our, our mutual friend of ours, uh, and I were talking about the play that I'm writing and that uh, we were talking about what I intended, what I didn't intend. And then we got to his and he said, come on, Isolde, tell me more about the thing that I've written that I had no idea I intended. And I tend to do that. I tend to look at these things and go, oh, these are all the symbols and this is all the imagery that I'm getting from it. And then I want to interpret it. And so when you're doing this, again, as a self-taught artist, you're, you've said that it requires no training, but yet you also said, oh, but I use the Grisel method. So talk to me a little bit about that notion of sort of reconciling. It doesn't require training, which I don't think it does. And at the same time, there are things that you're following. There are things that you are uh, looking not to emulate, but to explore that are techniques that, that are known to work or that other artists follow. 
I am passionate about the craft and painting is as much showing up as I think it is having an approach and having an understanding. Like Basquiat was never going to do underpaintings and Grisel method, but that was just, and, and that's his vein. And to even approach that and try and do it would immediately look like cribbage. Like I see artists sometimes who are so clearly painting in his vein and I just see someone who's afraid to be original and is afraid to step out on their own ledge. I was at the Met this week with my mother and we went to the Manet Degas exhibit and it was beautiful to see the art of painting because that's what it is. It's it's a commitment to a skill to relay the level of detail that they did and the clothing and the fabric and the tones of skin and the shadow play. That's what I'm working towards in a sense. And so knowing the detail they put in, it doesn't seem like there's much to it, but the underpainting, the way it creates the shadows, I learned that from Instagram. I saw someone painting and talking about how she built up her paintings and it made her shadows better and it made the lights come out brighter. And I just said, yep, that's what I need to do. Like I reached the point where I said, if I want to be the artist I need to be, I need to learn what the real artist did. And I need to immerse myself on my own line, train myself, but I need to know what is really involved in making a great painting. That's so interesting that you said that. What is really involved in making a great painting? And the reason I'm curious, it sort of stopped me in my tracks a little, is we've already established sort of art is in the eye of the beholder. So the question is simple. What to you makes a great painting? The biggest piece to me is the part that is out of your control, and that's just when it comes into the world and if the world is ready for it. I think great art has to connect to something to really be remembered. And I think, okay, let, let me, let's take a step back. When I say great paintings, I mean two things. One, great as in the sense that I think there is a a technical ability to it that makes it stand out. I don't think that some paintings, some paintings look way too easy and slapdash. Again, going back to the Met, they had an exhibit on Fauvism and they had um, Matisse. And some of the stuff is great, but some of it looks like what a three-year-old can do. And I'm not saying that's not a great painting, but you can look at it and go, ho-hum. But a painting like the Demoiselles de Avignon that's in the, the MoMA, even though it looks simple, in reality, there's he moved the, the paint, Picasso moved painting forward when he did that. That is a great painting. It's a lodestar. But it connected to something deeper in the time and that the world was changing and that modernism was really coming into effect, and Paris was coming into the next, leading sort of the times, and America was coming into its own, and World War I, I think, had finished, if I'm remembering correctly. Anyway, the point being, the painting was great in its sense technically, but it connected to something larger, and that's why today it's still so important, is that people saw it, and it connected with them, I think, on a deeper level, spiritually. And I think that that notion that you just said, that it connected on a deeper level spiritually, I love it. And it also makes me a little uncomfortable. And here's why. Uh, for me, I look at Picasso's early work and I'm like, oh, I look at his Cubist stuff and I kind of go, eh, just because uh, at some point it feels to me like he went, I'm just going to bleh. And that blah, everyone's going to love because I'm Picasso. It just feels that way. I don't know if it, that's obviously was his thought process, but that's what it feels like to me. 
On the other hand, I look at who is my favorite of all of those painters, Van Gogh, and I go, oh, he labored in obscurity. We really didn't know anything about his stuff until after he passed away, after he died. And so that, and that brings me, of course, to Starry Night, which I think is, you know, it's world famous. Everybody loves it so many. It's, it, it happens to be my favorite of Van Gogh's work, certainly, and one of my favorite paintings. And what I wonder is, we all now agree, most of us anyway, that there is something incredibly special about that painting. But then, he, as I said, he labored in obscurity. So uh, it, do, do we need distance? What do we need in your mind uh, as appreciators of art or artists ourselves to, to truly get what a painting is trying to tell us? bearing in mind what you said a minute ago about the world being ready for it. So I think with to tie the knot of Picasso and his later work, he definitely fell victim to the curse of success. And I think with any artist, and you could talk pop stars, I mean, even look at someone like Madonna. She's continued to have a career, but the the quality of the work diminishes over time. And I think it becomes easy to say, well, people like this, I'm going to give them that. Even when you try to go in a new direction, I don't know how many artists, once they've been successful, continue to truly take risks. You become this machine, it becomes big, keep the machine running, just do what's good. So Picasso, I think definitely later in his career, I don't like that stuff because it's slapdash and it's just he could do what he wants and he became an old senile man. Van Gogh, to me, as we discussed when we first spoke over the summer, is is the shining North Star because he he worked for the love of it. And you could see he wanted so badly to paint these beautiful portraits of peasants, and he just couldn't get there. You know, it's like wanting to be a mathematician, but you can't get past basic algebra. But the passion is what comes across in his work for me more than anything. Just the love of it and the desire just to to do the work. I think another thing that comes down, especially now more probably in modern art, is that people have to get behind it and make it want to be part of something. At some point, Picasso became a name, and the art world wanted to keep him elevated, and he became, that's that's what was always talked about, and that was what it was compared to. Times have shifted, obviously, and I think it's a little different now in that it's easier to get out in the world as an artist and get recognized, but you still need the gatekeepers to get behind you in a sense. I don't know what those gatekeepers were really watching when Van Gogh existed, but if he was in Paris more... Would he have been noticed sooner? Would it have been a little different? I think about like the Mona Lisa. It wasn't in the Louvre for hundreds of years, and it wasn't until it got stolen in 1913 that it became the painting, like the biggest thing in the world. But for 100 years, it was just a painting, and suddenly become it gets stolen, and they thought Picasso did it for a little while. Then it becomes this larger-than-life thing. Sometimes things are just so out of your control as an artist, and it's the twists and turns of the currents of life that can take something beyond what it maybe could have ever been and elevate it to a totally different plane of existence. And I love that you said that. And it makes me a little sad for so many artists who end up again, laboring in obscurity sort of because it does feel like it takes one person of influence to go, you, your stuff is good. And then everyone turns and goes, yes, your stuff is good. And so that makes me wonder, in the world of social media, because I know you have an active Instagram account, in the world of social media, how much do influencers like that play into 
what artists can hope for or maybe expect in a really optimistic way uh, for their art to be seen in the world because everybody can have a free Instagram account. Everybody can take a pencil to paper. But not everybody is going to pursue the art, learn the technique, make it so that their art is front and center, and also perhaps catch the eye of an influencer. What are your thoughts on sort of technology and how it can elevate or destroy art and artists? I think social media is the greatest worst thing that's ever happened to humanity. I think it's a necessary evil at this point, certainly. I think you can't avoid it if you want to be an active member of society and the world. But I think that at the end of the day, it's just a way for people to flaunt what they have and make many other people feel really bad about themselves. And in terms of artists and social media, I see, I know when I first started that I would see artists I enjoyed and I would try to emulate them. I'd say, wow, this person's in this gallery. They're painting this. I want to paint in that way. And going back to what we said before, I wasn't painting for myself. I was painting for what I thought others were going to see. That was the social cachet. They're doing this. They're getting noticed. That's the style. And at some point I said, no, I'm going to be original. I'm going to do my own thing. I think the biggest thing for me with social media that frustrates me is I see so many people who want to be, and I'm using air quotes here for people on uh, listening, they want to be the artist, but they don't want to be the artist like Van Gogh that toils in obscurity and just works for the passion of it. They don't want to be the artist in the studio six days a week putting in the time. They want to be the artist taking photos of a gallery they go to and inserting themselves into it. It becomes more about them as a person. And for example, the other day I saw someone that had a solo show. If they put up 10 photos, five of them were selfies of them. And some of them were pictures of the art. And I thought, what's it about? Is it about the art or is it, are you an artist or are you just someone that makes art and is sort of playing up this persona of, oh, I'm a cool artist. I sense a lot of people are caught up in wanting to appear as an artist rather than wanting to really put in the time and the effort. If you look through my Instagram, there's no photos of me. It's not about me. It's about my art. You know, when Van Gogh was painting, yeah, he did self-portraits, but I'm curious. I'd be, I'd love to see how old artists would exist with social media and how much they would insert themselves into the photo. I feel as an artist, you should be in the background and your art should be in the foreground. I have so many questions. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I love, I love it. I, I, I'm, I'm a fan, I'm fangirling at you. Sorry, but not sorry. So I love what you said about artists should be in the foreground. Uh, artists should be in the background and the art should be in the foreground. Having said that art is a business, right? So we, we uh, who are creative, there are no patrons, generally speaking. You know, I, I was talking to a, a friend who is a playwright, and his his musical is winning awards, and da da da. And he was like, "I miss those days when there were patrons. Why can't we live like that today?" And I said, "Well, frankly, the vast majority of the people who might have been creative were not going to get a patron to to pay for them to make their art. They would be scullery maids or whatever. So one or two maybe would would have patronage." The rest of the people would be toiling in obscurity. So within that, when you look at art being a business, 
self-promotion becomes part of it or how do you get noticed like how do you if you don't take advantage of TikTok or Instagram or whatever social media thing happens to be on fire when you're listening to this episode if you don't take advantage of doing that how do you get your art out there how do you get those solo exhibitions how do you get people to notice who you are and what you're doing i mean here okay eric you've come on my show and my show's got thousands upon thousands of listeners and thank you for listening and so more people are going to learn about your art which i think is cool and you're i'm going to give you the links if you're listening to this i'm going to give you a link for how to get to eric and find his art which is really cool towards the end of the episode but how do you do it how does an artist today not just social if social is more about sort of self-aggrandizement let's say i'm not sure it is but let's say it is how do you do it how do you get your art out there noticed and get more uh awareness of who you are and of what your art is to the general public great question all valid points uh for starters yes it is in this day and age about promoting yourself and brand awareness in a sense that being said, I do think old school networking goes a long way. That's how we connected, was through Alan, who was a friend of mine, and he invited me on. Um, yes, you have to be out there. You have to promote yourself. I will still go back to that dichotomy in my mind of there's people who do the art, and that's what gets noticed, and then they are further promoting their art, and there's others that are helping them promote it. And then there's those who just see more intent on promoting themselves and not the art and the artist that they are. And there's people that kind of just want to be, they want to be the, 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 the celebrity without putting in the work. And that's just my viewpoint, right? That's what I see. I think a lot of social media is people wanting to project this air of I'm important, I matter, I get it. We're all just existentially drifting on this rock in space and wondering what are we doing here? What's the point? I understand it. There's a lot of dread underneath. We'll try and avoid that. But I think if more people were willing to not be so worried about trying to say, oh, here's my highlight reel, I look great, don't post every day. Just do the work. Post the art. Let the art speak for itself. In time, I think the real artists will get, no, maybe not all, but I do think in time, true art and true commitment to it will get you noticed in the way that is, I guess, universally destined for you. And we're coming back to those creative spirits and, and the hope that, that that flow of creative inspiration through the artist connects with the people who look at or experience the art, which I love. Uh, and, and, I, and I hope so. You know, I mean, it's funny because when I started this show, I love that, by the way, there are people, I don't know if you can hear this as you're listening, there are people outside chatting and there are children and every once in a while I hear this child's excited voice and I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. So if you're hearing it, that's what you're hearing. Uh, but anyway, so for me, I, looking at all of this, I started this podcast to elevate creatives and their innovations to change the world. And so interviewing artists, for example, interviewing creatives in general, gives me the opportunity uh, to sort of explore that mindset. And in fact, the, the old name for this show was the Creative Mindset, and now it's the Creative Solutions Podcast. But you mentioned to me that you believe that creativity is a mindset, right? So stepping back from the business aspect of it, because we could keep talking about how do you promote yourself, da, da, da. 
we know that there's a lot of stuff to do there. But I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the mindset of a creative and what's necessary there for you as a creative and what's necessary for you if and when you feel doubt about your ability to be creative. Doubt is definitely a big part of it. I would kind of view it like if you're in the gym and, and you're, you're feeling tired or you're feeling sore, you push through it. The best way to get through doubt is to just keep going. Every time I start a painting, I get a few steps into it and I'm like, nope, this is absolute dog shit. This is it. This is where it all unravels. This is where I stop painting. But you keep going and you just stay committed to the process and you know I've been here before. I've gotten past this point. Every artist has doubt. If you remind yourself about that, there's always, every, every time I read a profile of an artist and they say, oh, I doubted my abilities, I wasn't sure, it's like, wow, they have it too? It's like when you hear that like Laurence Olivier would still get nervous before a performance. It's like, really? Like, that guy? Okay, I guess we share something in common. So that gives me confidence to say, doubt is normal. It's normal to trust, to say, what am I creating? What am I pulling out? Is this going to matter? Just keep going. If it matters, that's great. If it doesn't, paint over it. Start again. But the mindset for me is, it's just I'm big about the 10,000 hours. You put in your time. I show up here. This is my dojo. This is where I put in my time. Um, you know, this is where I practice my skill. The, the journey is definitely more important now to me than the destination. And I used to view it as, when am I going to be famous? When am I going to get noticed? Is this the painting? And that was such a negative narcissistic way to view art and I think that was a lot of what drove me making a painting this is what will get noticed this is what will get out there who cares if a painting does or doesn't get noticed doesn't change my day anyway I've almost found more joy in paint and posting less and taking more time to really find the image and get the painting to a point where I felt this is something I like versus oh I need to post it's been two weeks I love that you said that first of all all hail Malcolm Gladwell uh, turning point, yeah, or tipping point, that's it, tipping point. Uh, and in, in case you don't know what 10,000 hours is, uh, he posited in the tipping point that there is a point at which you can consider yourself arrived or an expert in whatever it is you're trying to do once you have put in 10,000 hours, which is a lot of hours, just so you know. But uh, a lot of people, especially creatives, talk about that notion of putting in the practice to the point where 10,000 hours is sort of the, the benchmark. And it could it could potentially be 9,000 hours for you, but the point is to keep, to keep going, to keep doing it, to keep refining what you're doing. And that 10,000 hours is, is a way to look at, oh, okay, I will feel like I've gotten somewhere. And it's interesting, Eric, that you pointed out uh, that this is your dojo. I, um, I'm a, an Aikido player. And I when I got my Shodan, which is first degree black belt, I, my sensei said to me, congratulations, you have now earned the right to begin to learn. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> you know, I thought going to class three times a week in all the clinics for five years before I got my shodan, I was learning. She's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. All this time you have been preparing to learn. Now, now after five years, you are ready to begin to learn. And so, so I, the question I have for you, Eric, is at what point did you begin to consider yourself an artist? Um, 
I would say it probably really came into being when I got the studio two years ago almost because that was when I stepped, even though I was painting six, I mean, during the pandemic, I was painting seven days a week, three, four, maybe sometimes six or seven hours a day. There was one year where I tracked how much time I put in every day, how many days I skipped. And in one year, I painted all but 14 days out of the year. I put in a thousand hours. It was three hours a day on average. And it was a labor of love tracking that consistently because I wanted to know how much time am I really in essence putting in. And that kind of was when the first flip kind of switched or switch flipped, I should say. And I'm like, okay, there's, I can see what putting in the time will bring me. But then it was coming to this space and saying, oh, there's someone that I'm, I'm traveling 45 minutes to get here. Like this isn't just going into my kitchen and waking up and painting or, or spending time, even if it was seven days a week. I was committed to coming here. And it was that commitment, putting on the overalls, getting in the sense, putting on the music, putting like having the little rituals, feeling able to be in this zone where it was just art. There were no distractions. Yeah, I have a computer and there's internet, but I'm just listening to music, not watching movies. It, that was when I sold myself. I am an artist because this is somewhere where I've I'm paying for this. Like I had said, this is something that I'm doing for myself and my craft. And that was when I was like, black belt on, let's go, let's keep learning. Awesome, so let's talk about that. This is your studio, this is your space. And uh, I'm in looking around the space, first of all, there's your paintings are on the wall. There's a color wheel, Munsell, yay, gotta love Munsell color wheel. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of the color wheel myself and colors in general. Uh, I, I was doing, I was creating a website for a client and she's a black and white. Mm. All, all the stuff is black and white, just that's it. And I'm like, ah, okay, I'll do it for you. But ah, I, want, I love a lot of vibrant colors. So in the studio, you've got your paintings, you've got an electric guitar, bubble wrap, a fan, a bunch of paint. And I notice, of course, the postcard uh, that is a Vincent van Gogh 3D image, it looks like. And then you have a lava lamp, which I love. I, I love lava lamps. Let me ask you this. What makes, what are the ingredients that make this studio your space to create? What is necessary here for you? And if not necessary, what is inspirational here for you that makes this space the space that you want to create in? When I first came to the building that the studio is in, they showed me another room, and it was like half a quarter of the size of the room we're in. It was a closet. And he was like, yeah, this is 350 a month. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, yeah, we have another room I can show you. And he brought me in here. And it was like in Pulp Fiction when they opened the case and it turned the glows, I just was like, yeah, this, this is it. I was like, this is the space. Because as I've gotten more into art, I've read biographies on really all the great artists, all the great biographies. And I'm obsessed with and I'm passionate about learning about their creative process. I love knowing what were they doing on the day that they made this painting? What's their studio like? What's their setup? I that to me being having a creative process is just as important as what you what you put out. And so for me when I saw this space, I was like, yep, this is a lot of room I could work with. I could do a lot, I could throw a lot on the walls, I could put multiple easels in. In terms of what the, the ingredients are, it's a mixture of having the tools of the trade, but also as you'll see, there's a lot of little tchotchkes and things. I call them like 
talismans almost, right? Like these little creative things that I've gathered along the way. I'm not a hoarder, but I see things and in that moment, I'm like, yep, I gotta have it. This is part of the quilt of what I'm creating for myself. And just being surrounded by it, it's, I can't really, I'm usually good at putting things into words, but in this instance, I really don't have an explanation for you. I just come in here, everything that I do just feels natural. I do what I want in here. It's really a space where I control everything. And that I think for me allows me, while I still don't feel like I'm fully in control of creating all the time, I can channel that energy in a way that feels powerful and positive for me. I think it's rare in life to have a sense of agency, but this in here I have a sense of agency. Yeah, and it feels like that to me. I walked in and I'm like, this is his space, you know. And what's interesting, what you said about uh, control, to me, what I heard with what you said, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was that you've set up the parameters that allow you to be in creative flow. That's what I call it when I, when I work with my clients about getting their creativity to where they want it to be. I'm talking about getting to a place where you've created an environment or an atmosphere where you can feel free to express yourself. So within that, thinking about it that way, and, and you're nodding, so that's good. That means that I'm on the right track as far as you're concerned. Some things are group efforts, right? Some things are you build off each other. And I, I love singing in harmony. I'm a, I'm a singer, I'm a vocalist. In addition to the other things I do, nothing is better for me than singing in harmony. Those are the things that I love the most. Playing in harmony, singing in harmony. I love playing off of other people's energy. Painting is solitary. It's a solitary pursuit. And even when you're in creative flow, do you ever need someone else's input? Or uh, do you ever miss that? And if so, what do you do about it? How does this very solitary pursuit, even though it's obviously satisfying to you and inspirational to you, how do you maintain your commitment to it despite the fact that it is a solo experience? The commitment is, the covenant is to myself. I'm committed to myself because this is something I'm passionate about. And I remember when I was in Amsterdam, it was 20... I want to say 17 maybe I was in the Van Gogh Museum and I remember having just sign of a religious awakening in a painting sense in the Van Gogh Museum and just forever after that saying I am going to commit myself to my art whatever it takes and that's why showing up it's for me I am an extroverted introvert and so I have my things that give me ability to be around people trivia night we'll get to that now I'm back in an office five days a week, so I have coworkers I'm around, but I need my ability to be in, in my own zone, in my own space. And when I come in here, I put on my music, and that is enough for me because this is about, this, it's, it's for me, and then I put it out into the world. I love that you said that, uh, the extroverted introvert. I'm the same way. I a lot of times do need that group thing that everybody vibes off each other. And then I need my alone time. And so, yay. And being back in an office, uh, that could be overwhelming to me at this life. <laughs> if I went back into an office, I might just be like, it's too much, it's too much. Uh, and yet, 
there is that energy you can get from people. Having said that, when I'm in a situation personally where I'm creating, and I'm going back to something you said a while ago, I get to a point in every project where I go, oh, I'm not, I'm not singer enough to do this justice, or I'm not writer enough to, to write this book or this play or whatever. And I get to that place, in, inevitably somewhere in the middle, uh, and go, holy crap, what if I can't do justice to the thing I've envisioned? And sometimes I can go to the writer's group and go, y'all, I need some, some, and one of the things we do in this writer's group is I will, I, I require everybody before they submit something for feedback, you have to say what kind of feedback you want and you have to be ready for the kind of feedback mm-hmm. you're asking for. So if you're only interested in supportive feedback, you say that. You go, I only want supportive feedback. I, I'm not ready to have it critiqued. Just tell me what you like about it. Or if you're ready, and I go, my my ver, my words for it is tear it apart. I want you to, I'm ready for that. I've worked on it as much as I can, tear it apart. But I do ask for other people's opinions so that it can inform uh, some of that. But if I'm in that place where I'm like, oh, I'm not writer enough to do this justice, I go, just give me what you like. Send me in a, in a direction where I can go, ha, huh, okay, there's something here. And some of it I may have already been thinking about. And there's something interesting to me about that notion where when somebody says something that's correct, not not good or bad, but correct, there's a sense of recognition. You know, you kind of go, oh, yeah. Whereas if it's not, if it's not in the flow, it feels off. So when you're doing this, do you ask for feedback? And if so, what do you take out of it? And also, do you know what I'm talking about when I say that sense of recognition? Like, oh, yeah, I kind of recognize that. It might not be what I've thought of consciously, but it feels kind of familiar. If you know what I'm talking about there, I'd love it if you'd comment on that too. Yeah, no, so do I ask for feedback? Not from anyone other than my own sense of right or wrong. I, no one comes into this space, and not because I don't let them come in, but it's just not that kind of space where I have many artist friends that flow in and out. Sometimes I put works up that are in progress, but usually I only put up the finished piece for me, the best way I can describe it is it's like an itch. And if something, if I'm looking at something and it just doesn't feel right in my brain, like for example, this piece back here, I painted those back walls, the pink and the orange, four or five times each because I could not arrive on a color that just felt right for that. That was no one else's feedback but what I just sort of felt in my gut. Painting is the only area where I would say I prefer to be that creatively isolated everything else I do, I do appreciate the back and forth. And that is what I do love about creative endeavors is that we can both bring our song and dance to the table, but the best way to get the most out of it is if we're both willing to have our pluses and our minuses. One Something I always find interesting about people that either aren't creative or don't have a lot of experience in the giving ideas and working in a creative capacity is they'll say, oh, here's my idea. Um, and, and you'll say, well, you know, I'm not, oh, well, it was just an idea. And they'll kind of like get defensive about it in a sense. Like, no, it's okay. I, I appreciate your idea, but that's the creative dance is that some things of mine I'm going to keep, some things of yours I'm going to keep. It's not about egos or right or wrong. It's about bringing out the best for the piece. And so sometimes, yeah, you do have to get feedback and you have to be willing to listen to what others are saying because your own intuition isn't always right 
But in terms of painting for me, I have never solicited anyone's feedback because in my mind, then it becomes our painting and painting for me is about this is my painting. These are my choices. So it, in, in its purest form, it is a solitary process for you, uh, which I think is interesting. And so, because I, when I, the, I used to paint when I was a kid, uh, I was sort of forced to take painting lessons. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to sing and dance. My father wanted to hear violin and he wanted me to paint. So I got to take painting lessons every Sunday. I was not particularly good at it. So I decided if, uh, during the pandemic and the end of the pandemic, I was going to start painting. My version of it was... Uh, I'm going to solicit what do people want me to try to paint, right? Because I'm like, let's just see. And so a friend of mine said, give, you, I know Starry Night's your favorite. Give me your version of Starry Night. <laughs> okay. And so it became a collaborative process. I don't consider it our painting. She, you know, Tamara said, paint Starry Night. And I went, sure, okay. Uh, and prints of that are my bestseller. Who knew? But to me, there is a sizzle there in the collaborative process that happens which you don't need, and I do, <laughs> perhaps. Just like singing in harmony. Like I perform solo all the time, but there's something about the delta between two voices that is very thrilling to me. So when you're creating, and I'm sort of jumping back again, before we get to trivia and all of that other stuff that we were gonna talk about, um, when, you're, when you're coming back to that creative flow, the creative spirits, is that a collaboration? And if so, what of that inspiration, that creative, because to me, creative flow is crucial to me being able, I have rituals all around, I have an altar set up to creativity, blah, blah, blah. So I really honor the, the sort of the creative universe, the fabric of that. What collaboration do you have, maybe consciously, maybe not, with those creative spirits in order for you to produce the art that you then go this orange and pink on this painting are the right orange and pink for me? Um, I think it goes back to the process of showing up. I've kind of almost, I'm not a religious person, but this could, you could say like, this is a place of worship in a sense where I am coming to, to do the work that's being channeled into me in a sense. And again, I paint an image I always start with something that just sticks out to me, whether it be something I see on social media, an image in the New York Times, I see something, wherever it may be, I see something, I'm like, yep, that's the one. And then from there, it's kind of just like this drip of what's it going to look like? What's the overall tone? Is there a song I'm listening to where there's a lyric that goes through my head? I'm like, yep, that's the title for the song. Um, and then it's, it is a collaboration in a sense with the, the universe and the creative fabric because I'm not ultimately saying tell me what you want but as I'm going through I'm thinking what feels natural and it goes back to that itch and until I really like I won't paint this one behind me with Jan Jackson I didn't get started for two or three weeks on the color because I didn't know what colors I wanted and until it kind of just bubbled up to the surface and was like this I wasn't ready and that's the dance that I give it is it's my hand doing it, but it's a sense of what, what's the direction we're taking? What key are we singing in? I love that you brought singing into it. Uh, and so, so here's another facet of this. I'm so glad you're not in a hurry today because I've got so many questions. Uh, so another facet of this to me is 
uh, I lead and manage a holiday caroling group, right? So professional, we do corporate events, blah, blah, blah. And uh, all of the admin stuff falls to me, right? I do all the marketing, do the website, do all the gigs, da, 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 down to what key are we singing in? So all of that, I took on my shoulders, my singers, the people who work with me, and shout out to Philosopher's Tones, they're required to know their stuff, to have their costuming, to show up on time, to sing, to put on a great show, and then they get to leave and get paid, right? They get to do just the creativity part of it. I get to do the creativity part of it and also the admin. So the collaboration there is they get the creative, I get the creative and the what I consider the work. Um, you have things like that in your life, right? You have to have, uh, unlike people who have patrons, you got bills to pay. Right. And so you said you're in an office again. So that's part of this. But the admin of selling your work, of creating your work, of paying for the paints, all of that stuff, of maintaining the studio space. What part of that is is the delegated, I guess, delegated part that that is that makes. I don't even know how to ask this question. You have to to me, I have to split my brain up into pieces in order to be able to do both the creative part and the admin part. They're different parts of me. What do you do to take care of the administrative stuff while you are nourishing and nurturing the creative stuff? I guess that's probably the best way to ask that. It's a very interesting question actually. Um I've always kind of viewed things as the totality of it, right? So, like, even if you look at something like, maybe, I don't know, this is a straight correlation, but, like, an iPhone, right? Like, on one hand, it's the product, and it's there, but there's all the stuff underlying that you don't see. And so, for me, I am... I do enjoy being immersed in all aspects of something. I like the work. I like staying busy. I think that I'm at my best when I can be involved in a lot of different pieces, I like being productive. And so whether that's needing to say, well, I got to get supplies, I got to pay for things, I got to be administrative, I've got to do the website. I like having my checklist. I like having things to keep me busy. I'm sure if I stopped for a few hours and really thought about what I'm running from that I'm always so busy, or if I got back on the therapist's couch, we could break into that over a few sessions. But I just, I feel the most fulfilled when I know that I am handling my shit. I see a lot of people that are like, oh, the day's overwhelming. I have so much to do. It's like I work nine hours. I come home. I host trivia. I come home. I write questions or I go to like, you got 24 hours in the day. There's so much time to work with. Fill it. Life is so short in reality. It's a snap of a figure in the scheme of things. When my day is done, I want to know that I have no regrets and I did everything and that I was involved in everything and I like being busy. And so that's probably what keeps me going is I, it's, it's all, it's all worth it to me because it's all part of my story. Oh, yay. I would like to get better at what you just said. Uh, the creative part, yay. The admin part, uh, is hard for me, right? So it's just, it's a challenge. And again, it's like doing my taxes. I have to have a lot of different things in place in order to be able to do that right. I have to have systems and I have to have structures. And as long as I follow those systems and structures, I'm able to do that. I'm able to write books. I'm able to perform. I'm able to see my clients. I'm able to run this podcast, blah, blah, blah. You just said something that I thought was interesting. I work for nine hours. I come home. I go host trivia. I come home. I write questions. I did it up. And then 
I come here, I presumably at some point and do work towards your 10,000 hours, right? Do your, do your art. The energy level that it takes is immense. And I know this because I'm the same way. I, I wake up at 4.30 and I go to sleep at midnight and I don't sleep a lot because there's, as my husband says, on my epitaph, it's going to say there's just so much to do because there's always something really, I'm never bored, right? So when you're doing this, when you're splitting your brain, essentially, metaphorically, to these different pieces, uh, what are your greatest challenges to making that, I know you said you love it all, which is great. If maybe there aren't any challenges, but what are the greatest challenges of, and do you need a transition? Boy, I'm so, I'm amazed that you're able to follow my questions, by the way, because I realize that I'm like ah, all over the place. But what are the greatest challenges to the transition between I've worked my nine to five and now I'm gonna go to trivia night, or I've worked my nine to five and now I'm gonna go to the studio. Do you need a transition? Do you need a routine? or a mindset shift in order to make that happen so that you can get ready to do the trivia or to create your art. I still find a way to sleep eight hours a day if I can. So sleep is very important to me. When I get six hours, I feel like a zombie. Um, music is a key piece of what helps me transition. I leave work, just listen to music, I walk home, going to host, whatever it may be. That's kind of like, um, like the Manchurian candidate, right, would hear his signal, he'd flip it. Like, it's just, it's knowing what I need to do because these are things that I want to do and they bring me joy. You know, I've made the life for myself that I want. I'm, no one's forcing me to do any of these things. So knowing that it's things I've chosen to do and knowing that they're things that I enjoy, the energy kind of just, it, it gives it back to me. You know, it could be a long day at work, but when I go host for two hours, it's just like, I love this. Like, I, I could do this for hours. And then I go home and I'm like, well, I got to fix those one or two questions I got wrong. And here's an idea I had for something new. And it's kind of like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the more I put in, the more energy I have because the more I've seen what it's brought me. And I'm like, let's let's double down. Like, no, I want to buy back in. I want to put more chips on the table because I want to try and win more from the lottery of life. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, it's interesting what you said about music. Music is my transition uh, as well. And, and it also energizes me. It revs me up. It also relaxes me. I often sleep to music uh, because it helps, it helps me get to that space. And I'm a musician also, so that is part of it is I always look at and feel that the music being made. And what's interesting, uh, just the other night, my husband and I saw Lorena McKinnon. I don't know if you know who she is. Tremendous. She does a lot of Celtic music. And uh, she she's taken her music in a direction over the years. This is her 35th anniversary or whatever. Uh, in a, into this miraculous world music. She's followed where the Celts traveled in order to create her music, right? So it's this combination of sometimes it's along uh, the spice routes. Sometimes it's in Norway. Sometimes it's in, in Southeast Asia, wherever it is she is, wherever the Celts went, that's where her music, she draws her music from. So I guess the question I have for you before we get to the trivia, because I do want to talk about that, is the inspiration that it takes, how do you apply it to the various facets of what you do? I... 
I don't really have an answer for that. I just kind <laughs> of, I, I, I just tap into this well of energy and it's kind of just like, I, I know that it brings me joy and I know now, especially certainly more with trivia, what it's bringing for others. And I think that's what keeps me going. And the inspiration also is that in a sense, I'm doing something that is for me. I'm putting time in for myself. I think a lot of people talk about, oh, I wish I had more time. Oh, I'd love to find a hobby. Oh, I wish I had something I was passionate about. Well, go find something. Go put the time into something. It's going to be rewarding. And so for me to feel like in a sense that I'm one of the lucky ones, that's that again, that's kind of like, well, let's let's go. Like I have this chance. I have the free time. Uh, there's this new mantra I kind of live by. The greatest joy in life isn't how much money you have. It's how much of your time you choose to do what you want with it. And so being able to have my free time, being able to come into the studio, even if it's two hours, being able to do something, that's just really powerful for me. And that <coughs> in itself inspires me to, to keep going because I've seen how much more rewarding it's made my life. Yeah, I think that's one of my sort of, not mantras, but uh, truisms is it's my life is about having the freedom to choose what I want to do with it. And uh, to me, that's like crucial. So I want to pivot because I could talk to you about art, as you might be able to tell, for like the next 12 hours. And I know you have a studio day, so I don't want to do that. Let's talk about this. You you got the inspiration and I actually, test. I believe I tested your trivia game out. And something that I find curious about, about what you're doing with the trivia is that it's it's different than other trivia types in part because the questions are three and they are related to the initial question. Like, so it's always going to be, you're never just going to say, uh, who were the original three Charlie's Angels? And that's it. It's going to be, who were the original three Charlie's Angels? Uh, what was Tanya Roberts famous for before Charlie's Angels? And who played Charlie in the movie versions, right? So it was, it's always going to be three questions that are related that you obviously have to do a research on in order to make that happen. And if I can see by what you're doing with your face that you're going, oh, it's a lot of research. So I'd love it if you talk about uh, what inspired you to get into trivia, because I'm a trivia nerd myself. And what inspired you to do this sort of almost like related trivia questions, because it is different than pretty much any other trivia thing that I've ever come across. Yeah, um, I will probably be even more passionate talking about trivia than art, which is something I never thought, because this has truly uh, changed my life, and there's a good chance I'll get emotional, because it is very, very, very powerful for me. Uh, the impetus was... I watched the newest version of Name That Tune over the pandemic with Jane Krakowski as the host and Randy Jackson as the band leader. And I love Name That Tune. It's one of my favorite game shows of all time. And I had this idea one day, just literally just popped into my head. Well, what if like you give the answer and the host is like, ooh, that's not the three-point question. That's not the top worth, but we'll give you a point for that answer. Like It ties into what it may be. And then from there, I kind of just teased it out. Well, what if you have a one, a two, and a three-point question? And they were related. And I just had this thread. And I'll never forget, I was going to my grandmother's with my parents that day. And I mentioned it to my parents. Like, hey, here's this concept I have. And I thought they'd be like, why don't you focus on your career? Like, why are you coming up with game shows? 
But my dad was like, no, that sounds interesting. And I went home, I put together a very rudimentary like Jeopardy board, I had index cards. And really just from the start, it was this sense of easy, medium, hard, these questions that build. I really can't give you any more of an answer beyond that. Like it just sort of came to me in that sense. And as I started putting it out, it was originally gonna be developed as a game show. And I found a developer online because I showed my parents my very rudimentary version with index cards. And they were like, Eric, we love you. And we see that there's something here, but you need to have something more impressive to show people. So I found a developer online. This was March of last year. I'm going to try to put a timeline in as we go because a lot's happened in not even two years. Beginning of March, I had the idea. Two weeks into March, I hired a developer. By April 1st, he had the prototype. I then start going out showing it to people. Beginning of April, I show it to a friend who was in town. All of her friends were in town. One of their boyfriends was a bar manager. He sees it and says, you should host bar trivia. And that kind of was the first pivot where I was like, ooh, interesting. I come back from a work trip in Chicago. He gets me set up to host there in May. I host in May of 2022. That first game ends in a tie. And I'm like, wow, this feels really cool. Like, here's something I've created. People are showing up. We're at a bar in Brooklyn. Random people are playing. This is really cool. This is unique. And then keep going, keep going, keep going. I ended up pitching to Game Show Network, got in the room with VPs and cold pitched, got into New York Life as an approved vendor, went to a bar in the city, started hosting trivia randomly there. They were like, how much do you want for it? I was like, oh, I'm prepared to do it for free. They're like, no, no, we're going to give you 50 an hour. So now I'm getting paid to do something I enjoy. As I'm hosting it, it was the very rudimentary version of this call and response where it literally was like a game show. I had to manually enter the team names, tally up the scores, people would shout out the answers, and I realized I need to develop a mobile app so people could play in scale. I knew in my gut that we had something here. Fast forward to September of last year, the app is live, we start rolling it out into bars. I've now progressed to two bars on my own. I'm hosting every Tuesday and Wednesday. Now, week over week, people start coming back. So now I have regulars, and I'm like, whoa, this is, this is interesting. People are responding to this. Fast forward to January, I had a third spot. Fast forward to April, someone approached me that had seen it in a few different nights and said, hey, have you ever thought about bringing on investors? So now I'm like, this is a business here. And along the whole way, it's just people kept saying, I love the format. I love that you're asking things that are related, but it's different. You're tying in pop culture. It's easy, but it's hard. There's a timer aspect, so you can't really cheat. It keeps it rolling. And it's just been this thing that keeps, it's like a snowball rolling down the hill. From one snowflake that hit a second, and then a third and a fourth, and it's very much like Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point, more so than I ever felt with my art. The progression month over month, now I'm in, seven venues, I have eight hosts, I have a team of developers, I'm about to open a spot in Connecticut, I'm about to open another one in Brooklyn, I have someone in LA. It's, it's my future, it's my life, it's probably the thing even more so than art that I'm most passionate about and that is part of the next chapter in my life that I know I'm working towards. That's so awesome. <laughs> All right, so, it's growing and it the, the it is to me it's cool you know oh another related question progressively a little harder 
you have to think differently. You have to think laterally. And you also have to search your memory, right? Oh, I'll use Charlie's Angels. What was the movie of Tanya? Oh, she was in Beastmaster. Okay, boom. So, uh, and it's not an original Charlie's Angel. It's the last one after, I forget who left. Kate Jackson left, I guess. Anyway, why I'm thinking about this is that you are doing this, are you doing the research by yourself? Oh, you're nodding. Oh my goodness, that's a lot of work. So uh, what decides, and is it another creative universe <laughs> sort of thing, what decides what, what questions, what themes, what subjects you're going to actually pursue in trivia? You said pop culture, um, but as I recall playing, there were other things in there too. How do you decide and how do you pursue the research? And you said something also, what happens when you're wrong? All right, I'm going to hog the mic for 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> awesome. Hold my beer. Um, so I'll also say this. I had never, I had played trivia one time in my life, been trivia night one time before I came up with this. So I'm not a trivia person. I have always been an entertainer. Whenever I would have to give a presentation or a PowerPoint, I always worked in a joke. I always worked in something funny. I love to entertain as much as I love to educate. People would always say, Eric, you should have been a teacher. I'm glad I wasn't in some sense seeing the modern teachers, but they have to go through right now. Right. But I've always enjoyed as much educating people as entertaining them. So yes, from the start, I wrote questions because I knew I had to fill at least enough games worth to fill a pilot. The original goal was to film a pilot of one, two, three, and sell it out west. Try and get it picked up as a show. Obviously, that pipe dream has been pushed down to the blind, but that still is the dream: is to have it make be a show. But originally I had just, you know, your normal categories, history, literature, but I grew up on like VH1s. I love the 70s. I love the 80s. I am a pop culture savant. I've got a very good memory. That's one of the things I inherited from my dad. I connect dots and I always know how to connect and correlate. And it almost goes back to those conversations you have with friends where it's like, oh, this and that, but this movie, oh, but it wasn't as good as this. And do you remember when he was in that movie? And that's kind of like how I talk with people. My sister and I dissect pop culture all the time. I just start writing them, but I come up with categories like celebrity mugshot. Like, oh, how cool would it be if you put up their mugshot? Because with our format, you could build so much more into one round. It's not just the one question and you're done. So I could show you Bill Gates' mugshot. First of all, how many people know that Bill Gates got arrested? Not many. So you're seeing that and it's already entertaining. But a lot of other categories, movies, music, I have all the decades, faces, events. It's things that I just feel like this is what would be good to put out. I kind of go with my gut. We have over 12,000 questions we've written. I've written 95% of them. I now do have people that helpfully help me write questions because it is just too much for me to do at this point. But there's no question I haven't seen. So I've been involved in every question that's been written I'm open to people giving me feedback. A lot of the categories we have now are people suggesting them. You should have Nepo babies. I love that. You should have one about airports. That's been a huge fan favorite. Celebrity exes, people love that. Um, sports, events, there's just, there's no end to where you could go with it. I think one of the things I've noticed is I've now started to observe other trivia nights is I use the iceberg analogy. When you have a trivia, like, I'm not going to say their name, but one of the main competitors in New York, their questions are, first you have to solve a riddle, and then you have to figure out what the answer is. And it's not multiple choice, you type it in. 
it's hard. It's elitist. I think it check, turns a lot of people off. I understand why a lot of people, when they hear trivia night, they roll their eyes. They go, ugh, trivia night. Us, it's you know where you stand immediately. It's on the phone. It's multiple choice. It's a game show in a bar is the best way I describe it. And so when I do inevitably get questions wrong, um, you know, you write 10,000 if you were going to slip through the cracks. The other night we asked, we asked 180 questions in a night. I messed up one. I put uh, Patrick Stewart played Magneto when it was actually Professor X. And usually when we make mistakes is because you're typing, you see this and you type it in and you put it in the wrong field. It's, it's common human error. It happens. One out of 180, that's a great ratio. Like, I wish I had that kind of GPA in high school. <laughs> I would have gone to Harvard. Now, of course, this some people kind of don't let you forget that you got one wrong. But I've learned to just say, hey, I'm human. I'm sorry that I messed it up. I'm going to give you all the points back. We own it. We put in the mistake. We, we've, we put in the correction. Um, you know, I'd say if we get one question wrong a week, that's a good week. <laughs> Yeah, immediately I went, oh, Sir Ian McCallum was Magneto. Yeah. Uh, and so, okay, so you write the questions, and I love the, the whole educator, entertainer thing, edutainment, they call it. Um, the way I'm looking at this question that I'm about to ask is a little like, huh, okay, you get them wrong, you own it, which is great. What I'm curious about is the sizzle. What is the sizzle for you hosting or hiring people to host? You who have said you're an extrovert and introvert. What's the sizzle for you of doing this, of, of getting people excited to come to a bar and do trivia, you know, trivia night at a bar? What, it, what is the thing that makes you go, yeah, I want to keep doing this more? Hmm. Two things. Uh, the first is that I enjoy it immensely. I enjoy building this community and giving people something to do. I think there's a lot of people that play one, two, three that never played trivia before and just would have never done it because it seemed too hard. And so going back to that iceberg analogy that I didn't finish before, those other guys, they capture just what's above the water, the very little tip. But the iceberg, the, the Titanic, there was more of it below the water that they didn't see. I think there's so many people out there that would go to bars and do want to be engaged and do want to be part of a real community again. And they don't have that impetus. They don't have something that draws them out. I love drawing people out. Again, there are teams that come week over week for over a year. Getting to know people is, is an amazing thing for me, especially in New York. I think so many people say it's hard to meet people and make friends. So that's part of it. There's someone that writes questions for me that I didn't know this. I learned it after the fact from someone else. Her and her boyfriend were going to leave the Upper East Side and move somewhere else in the city. But they stayed because of Trivia Night and the community that they've and the friends they've made through that. So that's really powerful for me to not only have people I've gotten to know. I've met more people in the last year than I met in the last decade. It's unreal. So that's really enjoyable for me. But the thing now, and this is really just in the last few days, and a lot of it goes from all the jobs I've had, especially the job I'm at right now, that is a very demanding workplace, poorly run. I mean, inept leadership. What I want is to leave my legacy. One, two, three may be what it is, but I know that it's gonna to come to a point where I can employ people and I have a company. And I want to lead the, I call it like empathetic, human-driven employment revolution in the workplace. There's a saying, 
Better to be feared than loved. No. Fuck that. Better to be loved than feared. I firmly believe that if you view people, it may sound weird what I say, but if you view them almost like as a stock, everyone starts at zero. The more good you do, the green goes up, and that earns more trust from me. I'm going to invest in you more because I'm sensing that I'm going to get more from it back. Now, granted, that doesn't mean I'm not going to be aware of what you're doing if you're suddenly going to take my kindness and try and use it against me. Nuh-uh, honey. I'm not going to let that happen. But remote work, it's been proven that people don't need to be in an office to be productive. Four-day work week, it's been proven. Giving people off on their birthdays just because they deserve it. No one should have to ask off for their birthdays. Giving people PTO after 30 days, not having to make them wait insane probation periods or accrue it. I think that the ways of like a Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs or Elon Musk with this kind of like berate people, chase out the tops, you only have the top, chase people out so only the top 1% remains. No, that's not, I, I think that there is a better way to employ people and be a leader and lead with your heart and seek the best in people and show them that you care about them as much as the work they're doing because if you care about them, they'll give you their best work. So that's the sizzle for me is that I want one, two, three to succeed so that I can be in a place to hire people, create the environment that I've always wanted to work in, that I know others want to work in. I come from an HR background. I've seen the worst of it. I want to correct those wrongs and I want that to be proof positive so others will follow suit. And that is ultimately what I'm working towards. I love that. And, it, you know, it's funny. I was ta- I have an intern right now and I was talking to him about it. And I said, my responsibility as a leader, as your boss, is to make sure that you have everything you need to thrive. That's it. I want you to have everything you need so that you feel happy coming to work, so that you feel joyful, and so that you have everything you need to excel, right? And that includes, you know, he's an intern, he's a college student, so it's not a time off thing, but it's funny because he said the other day, oh, I'm sorry that I haven't been posting. He's doing my social media for a project. I'm sorry I haven't been posting every day. My sister got engaged. And I was like, it's all right. I trust you to figure out how to do it and to handle your stuff. That's it. That was our interaction about it. He was like, oh, I thought you were going to be mad. No, you know, I trust you to know what you're doing. And if you need help, I trust you to come and ask me, right? So I think that's great that you have that as a sort of a driving force. Uh, and I'm kind of, I, I, again, I could keep you here for another six hours and I, don't, I know that we both have days to get back to, but especially you're here to do your art. You who have such a full day, every day, using the word successful in the sort of creative universe way, not necessarily in the money-making way. What does a successful day look like for you? I am a firm believer in finding success in even the smallest of things. Uh, there's, I live by sayings. I have a running list of cliches and sayings and all of this, but one of them is happiness and expectation live on two different sides of the street. So for me, even if it's being in a studio for two hours, painting one background on a painting, that's okay. I came in, I did something. For me, success is, and this is true in all capacities, is the end of the day when I lay my head on that pillow to try and get at least eight hours of sleep. (laughs) Did I go through what I needed to do that day that I knew I needed to do? And if I interacted with people, was I kind to them? Like the other things, making the money, having a good tribute, yes, that's successful, but do I feel like I'm being 
my best person, that I've had moments to learn and to reflect. And if there were things that I knew I wanted to do, did I do them? Whether that be going to Bed Bath & Beyond and getting a laundry bag, going to a family event, whatever it is, if I did what felt right to me and what was my realness, then that's successful to me. Again, fangirling. Yeah, absolutely. And I and it's interesting because uh, there's a, I'm not a Buddhist, but Pema Chodron wrote uh, the definition of hopelessness that I can get behind in, in, in her book, When Things Fall Apart. She wrote that hopelessness is the release of all hope for an alternative to the present moment. Right, sort of being being where you are. This is not to say you can't work for more or do more or try more, but that notion of accepting what is is primary to me, and and it's a lifelong lesson for me. I'm I tend to be pretty impatient. So when you are challenged, when shit just goes wrong, how do you respond? I'm very glad you asked that. Um, there's another saying that I've recently come across, which is, you're I think it's your joy or your benefit in life is when you find something that you're okay sacrificing and going through. The, 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 the suckiness that you're okay with. And so for me, for example, this job that I'm not presently crazy about, it's a good work-life balance. I'm out at five. That's great for me with trivia and all my other endeavors. The pay is very good. That's good for me and trivia and all my other endeavors. That helps me keep in mind those days when I'm like, wow, this place is a nightmare. I can see the bigger picture. I see what I'm working towards. Part of life is knowing that things are not going to always be good. Part of life is understanding that more often than not, it's going to suck. (laughs) Life inherently is full of death and destruction and chaos. Humans came into existence because a rock smashed into this planet and wiped out 95% of the population. So when things go bad, yes, it's it's sometimes you are overwhelmed by it and it's okay to, to fall into that. But I think the best thing you could do is pull yourself out of it, try and find a silver lining. Not always easy to do, but I firmly believe there's a silver lining in 99.9999999% of situations. And, you know, another line is that you can't have flowers without rain. And so I kind of always just try to remind myself, you've been in tough times before. They don't last. It led to better things. This is an opportunity to learn a new skill. This is an opportunity... (coughs) to gain a new experience, to prove to yourself that you can go through something tough. It's dark today, but it'll be bright tomorrow. Sometimes in life you gotta know when to paddle and sometimes you gotta know when to just float. (laughs) So true. You know, it's funny that that notion of rain, uh, I approach it similarly actually. We were living uh, in Maryland and uh, we were having a party and it was supposed to be an outdoor party and it started raining and everyone's like, ah, oh, crap. And I went, y'all, let's go dance in the rain. So we all went out and we're all dancing in the rain. And my friend Sandra and her partner, Kirk, walk up. We, I, we just talked about this like three nights ago. Interestingly, this happened like 30 years ago. And they walk up and Sandra goes, this totally figures. And I said, what? And she goes, it started raining, and I and I thought to myself, oh, they're having an outdoor part. Nah, Isolde's going to be dancing in the rain. And I went, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm going to be doing. So, and that's what we were doing. So this notion of uh, it's, it's raining today, it's going to be brighter tomorrow, or except the rain, 
again, my lifelong lesson. Um, look into the future. Envision uh, one, two, three as either a game show or on everybody's phones. Both. Or, or both, sure. Um, what part do you play in that 5, 10, 20 years from now? Um, five years, I would say I'm still very much involved in the captain of the ship. 10, 20 years down the road, I'd love to think that I've put someone else in a position to overtake the day-to-day. I am working and sacrificing now and putting in the time because I want to step away and retire early and enjoy the fruits of my labor. I was never really one to be like this whole manifest your destiny kind of thing. And I still wouldn't say how much I'm behind it. But I do feel like in the last 14, 15 months, I've really leaned into this. There have been times I'm like, I could see this happening down the road. And these things have already started to happen. And I'm like, okay, well, what else can I see? And what else can I envision? And, you know, I mean, again, this is going to sound really crazy, but I firmly believe in my heart of hearts that one, two, three will be the the in-bar experience and the game you play on your phones. And I do think it'll be a game show. But beyond that, I, I, I just want it to be um, just something synonymous with community and positivity. And so as much as I can lead that day to day and and be involved and help others follow their dreams and do the work they want, and at some point step back and just paint all the time in my little studio and, and travel and not really worry about out-of-office replies and PTO and, and and how much money are we spending today, that's that's like my future. And that's the you know, like in Shawshank Redemption, he just kept looking forward to that beach in Mexico. That was what he was getting out. That was what he was working towards. That's what I'm tunneling towards. And I'm willing to go through 500 feet of shit. I don't care. Like, I, I just know that all of this, there are tough days. There are definitely some tough days. There are definitely times when it's overwhelming. It's a lot for one person. There are times that I'm like, I could walk away. I've already accomplished enough. But I would kick myself until the end of time if I don't push this as far as I know it can go. Because I know it. Beyond my life, I can change a lot of other people's lives in a positive way. And I just want a lot of people to have a job they look forward to and really do. So few people in life, I think, do a job they're passionate about. And I want to help people find something and do something they're passionate about and get paid for it. <laughs> Always important. Oh, all right. Cool. Well, Eric, <laughs> again, I, I have more questions, but maybe you'll come back and we'll talk again. I am so grateful that you took the time uh, out of your painting Sunday to chat with me about this because it is uh, creativity in all its forms is is it's my juice right so that that's part of it but also the notion of being able to and wanting to help other people elevate I think that that's just one of those things that we uh, I think we can all aspire to so yay for you on that I would. I welcome you to come back because again I have like we we maybe uh, I talked about twenty five percent I wanted to talk about so at some point uh, I'd love for you to come back and talk more about all of this um, maybe when the premiere of one two three is on on ABC or something Perfect. that would be cool so I have just one other question oh well that's not true first before I ask my other question my last question that I ask of everybody who comes on the show 
Someone wants to find you. Someone wants to find trivia. Someone wants to find your art. How do they do it? Where do they find both of those things so that they can get involved in the trivia nights or and or more learn more about your art? So as much as I railed against social media before and social media overlords, if you're listening, please don't use that against me as one, two, three <laughs> continues to gain popularity. Please don't stall our growth. Um, but you can find me in all three of my endeavors on Instagram. You can go to Foyer Collection, which is my art account. I also have Foyer Photos, which is my photography account. That one is kind of just on the side. I post what I want there. But then through Foyer Collection, there should also be a, a link to take you to 123 Trivia Night, which is the Instagram account for 123 Trivia. But uh, yeah, 123 Trivia, search it. It'll come up all over Google. Just come find us. Um, I promise you'll be hooked from the first time. Awesome. And I will put the links to all of those in the show notes so that you're going to be able to locate it along with more information about how to find out more about Eric's art and the really cool stuff he's doing. All right. So here's my last question. And I ask this of everyone. (laughs) And it's interesting because it's a silly question, but I find that it can yield some very profound results. And the question is this. If you had an airplane environmentally friendly, of course, that could skywrite anything for the whole world to see, what would you say? It's interesting because I just was looking at the stickers on your laptop and one of them is be kind to the people, planet, and animals. And I would probably just say that because at the end of Trivia Nights, I often will say, thank you, everyone. Be kind to each other. And that's the truth. I think one of the saddest things I've seen in the last... 20 years as I've really gone from t- child to adult is everyone just seems to be meaner and meaner to each other and no one wants to really kind of take the time to even look at others and see how alike you may be and how much even if you have one thing in common that can lead you to a deeper understanding kindness is contagious I firmly believe it I used to be a I'm still sarcastic, but a very sarcastic prick. And I often used to be really negative and I think kind of rude. And I really worked hard to not be so rude to people. If someone's passionate about something, smile and ask them to tell you more. Don't poo-poo it just because it might not be something you're into. Be kind to people. It's contagious. It'll catch on. And I really just firmly believe that we all just took a little time to just be a little more willing to hear someone else out, to maybe apologize. I've had some tough interactions with people through one, two, through trivia. They had, they thought I was wrong. I thought they were, whatever it may be. When people are drinking, things can get weird. But I've worked to apologize when I thought I may have crossed the line to get to know those people, to go beyond just, oh, that person's an ass. I don't want to talk to them. And those are some rewarding conversations and friendships that I've gotten to grow. So again, in, in, in summary, just be kind to each other. I think if you're kind to someone else, They'll be kind to someone else, and before you know it, that'll keep going down the line, and I think we can get back to a place where we treat each other as equals, because we all are at the end of the day, and we see each other less as someone to argue with and be combative about. So just be kind, people. This is all we have. (laughs) Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I love the, I have like 42 stickers on, on the back of my laptop, which is what Eric was talking about. And they are there, and they're there because they are the truisms I live my life by, or at least I try to. Eric, I am, again, grateful that you took the time. This was so 
What a wonderful conversation. And if you're listening to this and you haven't already gone to check out Eric's art and also 123, just go do that because it's super cool. Uh, I, I helped look at the sort of the initial uh, iPhone version and it's just it's just fun, especially if you love trivia. But even if you haven't tried trivia, that's what that's what I found was interesting. I love trivia, but I actually had Rich try it and he's like, eh, my husband, and he was like, eh, oh, this is cool. And that was sort of a, a light up moment for him that, oh yeah, this is this is really neat. So So try it, check it out. And again, all of the links are in the show notes. You can find out more about Eric as you read the show notes and uh, see his art. And I might see if I can uh, grab a copy of the uh, the sign in Sydney Burstein's window to put in the show notes too, so that you can see some of Eric's art. Maybe that one, maybe another one, if you, if you let me, Eric. Happily. Uh, until next time, uh, please, as always, remember that this is Isolde Trachtenberg for the Creative Solutions Podcast. Reminding you to be bold, be creative, and most of all, be kind. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here. Please subscribe to the podcast if you're new, and it would mean the world to me if you told a friend about it. Today's episode was produced by Isolde Trachtenberg and is copyright 2023. As always, please remember this is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Past performance does not guarantee future results, although we can always hope. Until next time, keep living what you believe in. (music) Thank you.